further ado, we have Lindsay Steenberg, who is a, I think, still senior lecturer in, well, needs to be promoted, reader, okay, soon to be professor in film studies at Oxford Brookes. Um, she's written lots and lots of things about violence and masculinity. Uh, first book was Forensic Science in Contemporary American Popular Culture. And more recently, she published the book, um, Are You Not Entertained? Mapping the Gladiator Across Visual Media. Um, I first met Lindsay when she was pathologically obsessed with gladiators. Um, and then we met at another conference and she beat me up big style, um, which was really nice. It was a pl the pleasures of violence or something it was called. And, and I think we were the only two people there who just totally got the pleasures of violence, right? Anyway, come tell us more. <laughs> so it's this, now it's the Screen Legacies of Jeet Kune Do. Thank you. Thank I do like a gladiator movie, can I say. All right, Paul and Wayne have given me license to take half an hour, but I'm gonna keep the timer in case I, I just get a little carried away. I've got a lot of fun stuff here for you. Um, so according to Dan Inosanto, who we know, uh, one of Bruce senior students, it all began in a 1968 car ride and a conversation about fencing. It, <coughs> here's this picture again, was the naming of a new and hybridized mixed martial art which used simplicity and economy as its guiding principles, rejecting the rigid forms and uh, traditions of institutionalized martial arts. Lee named it Jeet Kune Do, or Way of the Intercepting Fist. As Paul Bowman establishes, this may not have been the first naming point of Jeet Kune Do. John Little dates its creation to Lee's 1967 notebooks, while Bruce's daughter Shannon, who we've heard about, and we'll hear a little bit more, um, suggests that it begins in late 1964 when Lee was challenged to a fight by senior martial arts uh, or senior members of the San Francisco martial arts community. Whilst Lee won the fight, he was so disappointed in his own performance that he commissioned a gravestone to mark what he had learned. There it is, the memory of the once fluid man who was crammed and distorted by the classical mess. He'd later commission these plaques alongside as a reminder of Jeet Kune Do or JKD's principles. There are several mythological origin points of Jeet Kune Do, and George Jennings has written a grounded consideration of how Lee came to invent the practice. But here, because I'm in film studies, um, I like to be guided by the lessons of the film The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, which kind of concludes that when the legend becomes fact, print the legend. Or for my purposes, always take the legend seriously when you're hoping to analyze any form of fact. So the fantasy of Jeet Kune Do, according to Bowman, is of a rational, efficient, interdisciplinary martial science. Shannon Lee sees it in much more personal and business terms, I suppose. It's a direct expression of Bruce Lee, a reflection of his soul made visible. And in one of the most memorable considerations of Jeet Kune Do, Jeff Yang in Vibe Magazine plots it on an evolutionary chain with US hip hop. He, sa he says, Lee took the lean and lethal style of Kung Fu known as Wing Chun and stripped down to the primal beats. It evolved like hip hop, beginning in the old school, spare, freestyle, with nothing separating the master from the rhythm. And then, only after locking down the basics, did Lee start sampling the best of what other disciplines had to offer, biting on world flavors like Muay Thai, Jiu Jitsu, and Taekwondo. 
The mythological origin stories of Jeet Kune Do take on an uncanny and archaeological significance because they're built out of the fragments of a transnational mediascape, out of the many different forms of Bruce Lee, as we saw in Lauren's paper. These traces include the testimonials of those who trained with Lee, like Inosanto, who's not allowed to use Bruce Lee's name anymore to market his stuff, uh, the remnants of his unfinished film, Game of Death, and the many Bruce exploitation films that would follow, Lee's so-called lost interview with Pierre Burton, that we see down there on the screen, um, and his 1965 screen test for the Green Hornet. Got it kind of up there in the top right. Um, also from the 1971 publication of an article entitled Liberate Yourself from Classical Karate and the posthumously published Tao of Jeet Kune Do, which I've elsewhere likened to Marcus Aurelius's meditations as it's accrued a similar kind of totemic quality. Um, now I'd like to play you a clip from the otherwise <coughs> forgotten crime television program Longstreet, um, which offers the sort of perfect introduction to JKD. I'll just note that it was written by Sterling Siliphant, who uh, was a, a martial arts student of Bruce Lee's. I'm just going to get a different version of the presentation here, <laughs> where all my kids work. Uh, he was a student of Bruce Lee's and worked with him on a few different projects. So don't take my word for what Jeet Kune Do is. Let's, let's get... Uh, what is this, uh, what is this thing you do? In Cantonese, Jeet Kune Do, the way of the intercepting fist. Intercepting fist, huh? Or foot. Come on, touch me. Any way you can. You see? To reach me, you must move to me. Your attack offers me an opportunity to intercept you. In this case, I'm using my longest weapon, my sidekick, against the nearest target, your kneecap. This can be compared to your left jab in boxing, except it's much more damaging. I see. Well, speaking of a left jab... Oh! This time I intercept your emotional tenseness. You see, from your thought to your fist, how much time was lost. Not much. <laughs> yeah, Lee's gonna teach me all this. I cannot teach you. Only help you to explore yourself. Nothing more. All right, all right. Come on, let's... Uh, let's yeah. Fantastic. Uh, what ...that I watched the entire series just to get to that first episode that I watched first. Okay. Sadly, I can't offer a comprehensive genealogy of Jeet Kune Do. If such a project is even possible, it's too large in scope for, for this presentation. However, what I'm hoping to do is zero in on the ways that JKD has been featured in Hollywood fight scenes largely, both embodied by Bruce Lee, his co-creators, his imitators, and his inheritors. And so I'm drawing on a combination of approaches that I've developed through other projects. So in tracking core moves that, uh, that are embodied through JKD, I have drawn from my gladiatorial project, um, and also from a Canadian-funded project that I'm currently just finishing, mapping the fight scene in Hollywood franchises, uh, working with Lisa Coulthard at the University of British Columbia. Likewise, I'm also taking it from a project I've just begun, investigating the training practices of screen combatants in the UK media, which includes a series of interview with combat instructors and ethnographic or, uh, observation and participation in combat training schools across the UK. This project answers Lauren Steimer's call for foregrounding the below the line work that goes into action cinema and leans very heavily on her innovative methodologies. 
So for this study of JKD, I've fused these approaches in a hybrid manner that I like to believe resonates with the conceptual core of JKD itself. So elsewhere, I've argued that Lee should be considered in context as a gladiatorial archetype that's ubiquitous in Western and indeed global media. In this light, we might read JKD as part of a gladiatorial game, deadly with flexible rules, key players, and bounded game spaces. The perfect example is this iconic fight between Chuck Norris and Bruce Lee in The Way of the Dragon, set in the ruins of the Colosseum. And I realize that almost everybody in this room will have seen this fight sequence many times, but it's such a clear manifestation of many things, but also the core principles of Jeet Kune Do that it's worth having just even a brief rewatch. Um, it's also an excellent way to start a conference that talks about Bruce Lee and martial arts. Thanks, Chuck. Um, I'm just gonna play it with sound for, for a little bit and then I'll move on so I don't overrun. It's a 596 second sequence taking a, up a total of 87 shots in a film with a runtime of about an hour 40 minutes. So that it is approximately just under 10% of the total runtime of the film itself. Sorry. But we'll have other things to talk about, I promise. We can return. Um, so there are 127 choreographed beats or strike movements, making for an average of 1.45 beats per shot. The sequence itself includes 208 seconds of actual foot-on-face fighting, giving it a fight density of 35%. So that's the ratio of actual violence to non-violence <coughs> in a fight scene itself. This is significantly high, as we'll see. The fight here is linear. It takes place in the same space, <coughs> with the same combatants, and during a consistent timeline. Now, I'd like to take a brief Tom Cruise-related counterexample uh, from Mission Impossible 2, which sees IMF agent Ethan Hunt, Tom Cruise, infiltrating the villain's underground base. So there's a lot going on in that graphic, including a pigeon. Um, the main takeaway that I want you to get is in the yellow at the bottom right, and that is the much more frequent editing uh, pattern. So 175 shots over 208 
18 seconds. So it's 23.9 edits per second in Way of the Dragon's Bite. It's 80.2 edits per second in this Mission Impossible film. The lighter fight density, so here in Mission Impossible 2, the fight density is 5.94% against the 35% in Way of the Dragon. And the sequence also has a good deal fewer choreographed fight movements. This is all to say, in, in sort of a lot of sound and fury, um, that this is a typical of the Hollywood fight scene of its time, and even to a certain extent now, although by the time we get to Mission Impossible Fallout, there are so many cross-cut bombs, battles happening across different sort of characters that it becomes even more complex. For this presentation on JKD, I want to highlight the complexity of the Colosseum fight, not in terms of a multi-level cross-cut action sequence, but due to the way we see the fight techniques of the combatants evolve over the scene itself. This scene sees JKD in active development and practice. Lee is fluid, he's like water. He's learning, he's experimenting, he's fast, he intercepts. Chuck Norris attempts to mimic this, but ultimately fails. His karate is showing. The sequence highlights the importance of timing, of interrupting the rhythm of the other fighter, of fakes, of feints that confuse and draw out certain actions only for them to be intercepted. So let's look at that in a little more detail. And, and quite quickly, we can come back during question and answers if people want to get into even more specifics. So in this moment, Lee imposes a rhythm with a sequence of low kicks, which he then feints low and then switches to his high kick. We see a similar type of oblique kick, or, or sort of cross stomp kick, in the warehouse fight in Batman versus Superman. Sorry to mention the film, it's okay. The warehouse fight, we forgive. Um, so this is Batman doing that oblique kick to one of his many assailants. Now look at the straight lead. So Lee sees, uh, reads the rhythm of Norris's sidekicks, anticipates the attack with a straight lead to the head. So that's with his right side facing his opponent that he demonstrated in that long street clip we just saw. Feints and decoys. Lee's chambered kicks deceives Norris into attempting to cover another low attack. And then of course it's a decoy and he goes high. Another form of feint is attack by drawing. So Lee appears, and this is another point outside of the Colosseum, but it has nunchucks, and you'll see why we need to talk about that. Um, so Lee appears to lower his guard, enticing this mobster to try an attack, which gives him an opening to strike. Mr. Wick does a similar thing. He strikes his attacker with the nunchaku to the head, his opponent, uh, and then he faints again, and then the attacker raises his arm, and of course John Wick redirects his attack to his opponent's groin. Very Jeet Kune Do. Finally, a final example here of specific technique, Lee anticipates Norris's incoming sidekick using his own low sidekick to block. You can see this in several different films um, where the stop kick is used not just as an attack, but a block and attack at the same time. That interception that was so important to Jeet Kune Do. Way of the Dragon's final fight demonstrates the many principles and hybrid techniques that make up Jeet Kune Do. And these can be traced into many Hollywood fight scenes and the way that they're designed. Now we're gonna look at the, the people involved here. So just as JKD is tied to the body, celebrity and trademarking of Bruce Lee, its on-screen and practical legacies are tied to the patrilineal kinship of Lee's senior students and their students. The most prominent among these is Game of Death collaborator, Dan Inosanto. Ideally, I would have liked to trace as many of Lee and Inosanto's students as possible 
go through the Hollywood production system and beyond to really understand that kinship network. But in the interest of time, and because she's often marginalized in considerations of JKB, I'd like to look at the career of Diana Lee in Asanto. Uh, her recent visibility in the media is due to her casting in a Mandalorian episode and then in Ahsoka. However, before joining the Disney Star Wars juggernaut, <coughs> Lee and Asanto had an established CV that includes acting, stunt performance and choreography, martial arts, writing, directing, and producing. Her IMDb page suggests she's earned the name Sensei to the Stars. And I don't think she's the only one who has that name. Um, this is for her work. Training stars including Melissa McCarthy for Spy, Rosa Salazar for Alita Battle Angel, and Aaron Eckhart in I, Frankenstein. They're all there. She's largely framed in the media through her relationship to male martial artists, including her father, her godfather Bruce Lee, and her husband Rob Balicki, a leading instructor, instructor under Dan in the Santo, with whom she's formed the Mars Action Group. You can see their sort of mission statement and website framing there. These framings work to foreground her credentials in a matter very similar to other JKD practitioners wishing to always claim that connection to Bruce Lee. Now I'm going to look at her independent film, which is an insistence on her own voice, and she explains that it was made in direct response to prejudice and inappropriate behavior she encountered in Hollywood. First, let me say, this is a low-budget film. It does not have the slick aesthetic and refined performances of more mainstream films, nor do its fight scenes, of which there are six and three are just in flashback, neither do they showcase particularly innovative cinematography or choreography, despite the obvious martial skills of their designers. But it remains distinct from its straight-to-video counterparts due to the foregrounding of a queer martial arts hero and a female sensei who's dying of AIDS. Now, there's more of the after-school special than the direct-to-video actioner about this movie. There are placards at the end that you can follow up if you've been affected by these issues, and one of the final lines in the film is, I guess, life <laughs> was the sensei. It doesn't deal with one social issue, it deals with many. Racism, the AIDS epidemic, med medicinal drug use, an intolerant church, a hierarchical dojo, homophobia, bullying, misogyny, all of them. And although JKD isn't explicitly mentioned in the film, which is set in a family-run karate dojo, we see that Lee Inosanto's training and the input of Rob Balicki provide evidence for these JKD fingerprints throughout. The traces of JKD are, are particularly visible in the training montage of our young hero. There he is. Um, which teaches him a compilation of things like energy drills, trapping, Kali stick work, and groundwork, all associated with JKD training. It also has many of the concepts that underpin the hybridity, countercultural drives, and creative improvisation of JKD. The most interesting and significant aspect of this film for me was the queering of the American martial arts story. It was a bit lost in the flurry of so many quickly rendered social issues. But on the other hand, the obstacles for its queer martial art hero, dismissal from church membership, refusal of dojo entry, and interpersonal violence, they're all inextricable from other systems of exclusion and prejudice. They work as a web, and this film tries to show us that. I'd argue that the hybridity and flexibility of JKD make it uniquely suited to providing scaffolding for such a complex story of belonging and othering, of liminal spaces of resistance. 
And there may be, I hope, time to kind of develop that and make those connections even further during our discussions. So the liminality and cold fusion of JKD's practice and philosophy are likewise rendered through postmodernity's promiscuous combination of aesthetics and systems of knowledge. In the digital realities of our media, JKD has become hyper-real in the sense that it's more real than the real due to the proliferation of simulations, whether that's the ghost of Bruce Lee teaching a teenager in the 1980s or his reanimation as a digital game avatar or an advertising spokesperson. Here he's not selling us iced tea, he's selling us Johnny Walker. Back to Tarantino and I'm sorry. His films are an illustrative example of this and Kill Bill's fight at the House of Blue Leaves is axiomatic. We can tra all, trace all these hyper-real traces. We have the bride in her Bruce Lee jumpsuit fighting uh, the Crazy 88 who are dressed like Kato in a circle that recalls the dojo fight in Fist of Fury. And of course the ultimate goal is to kill David Carradine. <laughs> the ultimate goal. The martial arts digital la landscape risks becoming, in William Morris's formulation, hypo-real, not just hyper-real, where personal reality is hyper-inflated and the real as a shared experience hyper-deflates. The individual becomes isolated, solipsistic, even as they try to navigate this digital world. And I'd suggest that Shannon Lee's book, Be Like Water, is a kind of evidence of this really inward-facing sort of self-help discourse um, and it, it kind of provides evidence for this process that Marin is talking about. This, I argue, is very exacerbated during the pandemic's lockdown, which forced martial artists away from their dojos and their communities online and into their back gardens, without the community that might have allowed their practice to be outward as well as inward facing. An elegiac and sorrowful return, perhaps, to Lee's backyard sessions that spawned JKD in the first place. However, these backyard sessions and the many, many offers of online martial arts during lockdown, we can see another key point I want to raise in terms of Jeet Kune Do under the logic of neoliberal capitalism, the way it's branded and sold as a marketable product, often through digital economies and certainly based out of cinematic reference points. I want to argue that it's useful to consider and analyze JKD and other martial arts as one of the UK's creative industries. And I know that's a bit of a dirty word in the UK, <laughs> Um, but bear with me, let's, let's see if we can do this. I'm gonna root the rest of my analysis in the UK context. So despite claims to having no style and belong to no disciplinary school, JKD has necessarily settled down to set syllabi and structured courses and separate schools. A few examples include Bob Breen's 4D Combat, Phil Norman's Ghost System, and the Defense Lab franchise. These examples are illustrative of the branding, digital products, and franchising that are, are a key aspect of the way martial arts businesses are run. So when I'm talking about the screen legacies of Jeet Kune Do, I'm not just talking about the movies, I'm not just talking about the TV shows, but also the DVD special features, the behind the scenes interview, the social media training regimes, and if you just YouTube training like Bruce Lee, you'll see them. Um, and even all the sort of JKD-related or inspired uh, martial arts brands that you find online. That martial arts journey, that is part of this on-screen legacy. Martial arts instructors who manage these brands and produce these paratexts are the embodiments of the precarious labor that fuels the UK's creative industries. T 
tied to a gig-based model of employment, the martial arts instructor often works freelance. Freelance, just gonna put that interesting martial metaphor out there, freelance, for small or for a small business. So Angela McRobie's argued that these types of laborers are working without the job security and entitlements that were hard won by the post-war period of reforms. These include parental leave, for example. These businesses and the workers were hard hit by the pandemic, and then of course, previously by the 2008 crash. Risk is doubled, at least, for the workers who are working as martial artists, written not only in financial terms, but of course, in physical ones <coughs> as well. <coughs> they are fighting for our entertainment. So an illustrative example of the kinds of gigs undertaken by JKD practitioners is the pre-training of stars. Here's some paratypes. Um, Bob Breen worked with several actors to prepare for their roles, including briefly the Batman's Robert Pattinson before the actor's more intense choreographic drilling with second unit director Rob Alonzo. He who worked previously on the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood scene. So just he obviously wanted to highlight JKD as part of this process. But I wish we had a lot of time for bat fighting and the analysis of it. Sadly, we don't. I'll just play it in the background. If you can even see it, I'm not sure you can. So Breen's time with Pattinson was about laying the groundwork of his version of Batman as a fighter. It was about the fundamentals of JKD-based training, body movements, conceptual awareness. He did a similar thing with Ed Skrein before his role on Deadpool. Breen comments online, oh no, you can't see anything. Can you? <laughs> That's part of the trickery. Um, above all, we wanted him to look authentically menacing, not just like an actor doing some moves, therefore it had to be a total approach. This reasonably niche gig of pre-training is about martial artists like Breen building an undercurrent of authenticity into the bodies of those performers, about training them to move and look like they could move like fighters, even outside of the scaffolding of choreography, or especially outside of the scaffolding of choreography. So to bring in, finally, the ethnographic research that I've been doing, I found that many of the screen combat intensives and courses for actors or SPACs, special action performers, have foundational elements of JKD and Filipino martial arts. Although it is worth noting that JKD is not among the martial arts recognized counting towards the core skills of the British stunt register. You might be able to sneak it in under the other category, but this <coughs> needs you to prove evidence of training from a young age and successful competition experience, which is hard for a JKD practitioner because the art wants you to not have those institutionalized rules that are required for combat sports. So this is an often invisible foundation of JKD, and it's down to the instructors hired for these courses, some of whom I've been fortunate to interview. I'd suggest there's a powerful feedback loop then between trends in martial arts training, screen combat training, and the reception of completed fight scenes. Performers are taught the basics of fighting with a cinematic reference point always to hand. Now the stairwell fight from Atomic Blonde was mentioned very frequently in the classes that I attended. Those trainers that are teaching these classes are brought in because their martial arts backgrounds resonate with those successful fight scenes that were being asked to reproduce. So, and that's, that's me pretending like I'm an actor and getting stabbed by a very nice bouncer from London. <laughs> This feedback loop testifies to the hyper-real nature of screen fighting. 
We learn to perform the simulation because it's associated with realism. This isn't to criticize, I love hyper-real fights, they're great. Rather, it's to insist that such paradoxal logic is inbuilt in the way screen fighting is taught. And JKD is an excellent example to investigate this, given that it's founded by not only a martial artist, but a movie star, and gains its visibility through memorable fictional screen fights like the Colosseum fight, and that it filters in and out of martial arts practice. And here's a little hyper-reality to say goodbye. Thanks very much. Thank <laughs> you.